this Friday, May the 8th, is going to be VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. It is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe. What an amazing day that really is. America had been at war for three and a half years. England had been at war for more than six years. And finally, it all came to an end, May the 8th, 1945. This is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe. And what a significant time that really was. It's because of so many people who gave it all that our world is very different today. Because the United States entered that war, everything shifted. And in the end, the Allies would win. Can you imagine what the world would be like today if Hitler had conquered all of Europe, Japan was conquering Asia? How different would our world have been? When I came to St. Luke's 29 years ago, we had so many veterans in our church who had actually fought in World War II. So many men and some women, but so many men who had been fighting. We had bomber pilots. We had sailors, infantrymen. We had people from every walk of the service, whether it was going to be the Marines. I mean, we, we had everybody. These people who had actually lived in this incredible time of uncertainty, war. They were amazing people. And over this last 29 years, I have conducted the funerals of so many of these very special friends. And it only seemed to me appropriate that when you and I come to the 75th anniversary of VE Day, that we really do need to take the time to honor these people. These people who gave their all, who used their talents and abilities so that we could have the country we have today and that we could be free. They had to confront their fears in order to be able to do what they did and keep their hope. One of those who was such a very special man and a good friend of mine was a man named Leland Nelson. Leland and Mickey were wonderful people. They were part of the Wedding Ring Sunday School class. Leland, it turned out, was a forward observer for an artillery unit. And he wrote a book entitled Windows on the War. We had talked about it. What it was like to be in your 20s, to be sent to England, to know that you were going to be involved in some of the fiercest fighting of the war. He was there in June 1944. And he said, as the days begin to click by, you sense this tension that was rising up. Everyone was so anxious. You knew you were going into war. You just didn't know when or where nor how. And not knowing what the future was going to hold, it made you so anxious and afraid. June the 2nd came, the 4th, the 5th. He said, you could feel the tension rising. We all knew something was going to happen. And then June the 6th, and we received the word, the invasion had begun. We all knew it was only a matter of time. Every day could be your day. For him, it was D-Day plus 12. When they got the word, go to your transport, you're going in. When he climbed onto that transport, he had this overwhelming feeling that he needed to write 
some letters home. And he got out paper and he sat down to write his parents and to write his girlfriend. It was his best friend, Lonnie, who said to him, what are you doing? I'm writing letters home. It doesn't matter. We're all going to die. You know that, don't you? And Leland said, Lonnie, we, we've got to keep the faith. We've got to hold on to hope. They set out across the English Channel in this transport and had not gone that far when a storm kicked up and the waves began to build and they realized that this transport was not making progress. They were being pitched around. They heard the engine stop and the anchors go down and the captain came on and said, we're going to have to stay put till this thing blows over, so just hold on and hunker down. Everybody was sick as a dog. It didn't turn out to be just a squall. No, the storm raged for three days. Three days they were holding on and so seasick. Finally, the storm passed. They raised the anchors and started the engine and made the last part of the journey to Normandy. They were actually going to go into to Utah Beach. And when they arrived, Leland said, he looked at it and it was like nothing he'd ever seen before. As far as you could see were ships and all these men and tanks, all this equipment going on to land. He looked at Lonnie and said, did you ever imagine we'd see something like this? And Lonnie said, three days ago, I didn't ever want to see this. And Leland said, Lonnie, we've got to keep the faith and hold on to hope. Leland said it kind of became his mantra. Whenever it looks so bad, we've got to hold on to hope. It wasn't the belief that somehow that God was going to keep him safe over everybody else. No, it was understanding that no matter what came, and no matter whether he lived or was wounded or died, he would do it in the presence of God. There was so much uncertainty and fear. He felt he had to hold on to his faith and hold on to hope. But you know, it wasn't just the men who were fighting over in Europe or fighting in the Pacific. You know, there were so many people who were giving their all. It required everybody at home. There were so many women at home who had never been allowed to work outside the house and suddenly Rosie the Riveter was born. No, we had women building tanks and planes and ships. You needed people to be helping to develop oil and people who were planting crops. We needed food. We needed fuel. And everybody who was still here at home, well, they had to sacrifice too. Things were rationed. You could only get so much gas to be able to travel. You could only get so much food. You had to have coupons. Now, when I look back at what happened in our country 75 years ago, you had everybody doing what they could, offering their talents, their gifts, in order to create the world that you and I have today. This world where we are free and we get to choose to be who we feel God has created us to be. You know, it's why I chose this scripture this morning. 
It comes from the book of Matthew, the 25th chapter. And it is this story of how Jesus said, there was a master who called three men to him, three servants, and to one he gave five talents, to one he gave two, to one he gave one. And the man who has received five talents, he, he went and made five talents more. And the one who had received two went and made two talents more. And the one who had had one talent buried it in the ground. And when the master returned, he called them into accountability. And the man who had five brought five more. And, and the master said, enter into the joy of your master. And the man who had two brought two more. And the master said, enter into the joy of your master. And then the one man came forward and said, I was afraid. And I buried my talent in the ground. Here you can have what is yours. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, Be Not Afraid. For we have said that from the announcement of the angel at Jesus' birth until Jesus' resurrection from the tomb, his words to the disciples all through was his message, Be Not Afraid. I think of how much of life is missed because we're afraid. To me, one of the saddest lines in the Bible comes from this servant who had received one talent when he comes back to the master and says, I was afraid and I buried my talent in the ground. Now we know that what's being discussed here is the idea of money that was being given. But all scholars say it's clear what Jesus was saying to people. God is the master. And he has given us many gifts. To some five, to some two, to some one. We all have varying amounts of gifts. But God has given us the gifts. And the question is, what are you going to do with your gifts that are going to make a difference in this world and in your life how much of life is missed when we are afraid? That's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at the scripture. And there's really just two things that I want to say. First of all, understand that your gifts, this is your opportunity. Your opportunity to develop your gifts now. This day. When you look at Matthew, the 25th chapter, you're going to see that there's actually three parables, one right after the other. The scholars say, you know, we had the Bible written 50, 60, 70 years after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. And so the teachings that all the church would remember were from the things that either heard or seen, but we didn't always have the right chronology. There was no certain chronology. And so when people sat down to write the Bible, well, they could take the teachings and if they had a point they were trying to make, then they put them together in the chronology that they felt was, was correct. And so Matthew puts these three parables together. It's unique in Matthew. And he puts all three of them together because he has a point he wants to make. The middle parable is the one about the talents. But you need to take a moment and see what the first one is. The first parable is actually of the wedding feast. And you remember the story. There were ten bridesmaids, and they had their lamps, and they had their oil. They were waiting for the groom to come, but the groom was delayed. 
He didn't come till much later and five of them would run out of oil. Five that were prepared and five got to go to the party and five were shut out. And the purpose of the whole parable was watch because you never know this moment. This is your moment. Be prepared. From that, you would move straight into the parable of the talents that every person is giving talents. Some five, some two, some one. The amount of talent you're given doesn't matter. What matters is, are you taking the gift that God has given to you to develop them now? Because you have something to offer. This is your moment. In a coffee with Bob last week, I was telling you about how Marsh and I enjoyed watching the uh, NFL draft. It's always a lot of fun to watch the first round and see all the people whose names are being called, who suddenly are going to make lots of money and their career is off on a whole new path. But we always like making sure that we've got recorded and we're going to stick around and we're going to see the very end. Who's the last person taken in the draft? And this year it was Tay Crowder. Tay Crowder is a linebacker from Georgia. He was chosen number 255, last pick, seventh round of the NFL draft. And because that's when he was chosen, he wins the title, Mr. Irrelevant. This whole idea started by Paul Salata back in 1976. Paul had the idea, if you're chosen last in the draft, well, you're Mr. Irrelevant. You get invited to come out to Newport Beach, and there they have a week to celebrate you and to roast you. They're going to have a banquet in your honor. You're going to go to Disney World. They have a golf tournament. You ride in a parade. They give you a, a trophy. Instead of being the Heisman, it's the Lowsman. It shows an athlete fumbling the football. No, they have a good time laughing and carrying on at your expense for a whole week. But you know, many people now look at this week, Mr. Irrelevant, not with the idea that because you were chosen last, you're irrelevant, but with the message, it's irrelevant when you were chosen. What matters is you were chosen. And you now have an opportunity this moment in time, it is yours to develop your gifts and to make the most of it. It is irrelevant what other people think about you or when you were chosen. Well, now I wanted to make this point. I was going to do my coffee with Bob. I started doing research all about it, and lo and behold, as I'm working on it, what I discovered was Coach Barry Switzer had already responded um, to Tay Crowder with exactly this message. And he started talking about Reggie Kinlaw, who had played with the Sooners, back in 1975 to 79, I want to read you what Coach Schwitzer had to say. He said, Tay Crowder, you do not need my encouragement as Mr. Irrelevant. You'll do well. Reggie Kinlaw, Oklahoma defensive lineman, 1979, was number 320 in the 12th and last round of the draft. He started at nose guard for six years on the Oakland Raiders' great teams. Super Bowl champions, 1980 and 1983. Good luck, Tay. Now, when I read that, I have to say, I immediately thought, all right, there's a sermon illustration. 
So I called Coach Switzer and I said, I don't know about this Reggie Kinlaw. I know some of the other people who were Mr. Irrelevant, who went on to have a great career, but I don't know about Reggie Kinlaw. Would you tell me a little bit about him? He was very gracious. And he started saying, you know, it was back in 1975. I remember clearly we were in the Orange Bowl. We were going to be playing Michigan for the national championship. That had been his freshman year. And he said, we were doing our warm-up drills, and I was watching him, and I went over to the line coaches, and I said, I really believe that Reggie is going to be ready to step up next year. He's going to be our starter and a great one. And sure enough, he stepped up the next year, interior lineman, playing nose guard, and he had a great year. And the next year was a great year. And then for his senior year, he, he had hurt his MCL. He strained his knee. The doctors thought, you've torn it. We need to go in and surgery, have surgery, cut some out. But that's not what Reggie wanted to do. And instead, they taped it up. They tried to rest it. He came back and did extremely well, felt perfectly fine, had a great season. He would have missed all that. But now the knock on him was, was that torn? Is a knee damaged? What will happen when he gets to the pros? And so he fell in the draft. No, it, in those days, it didn't just go seven rounds. It was the 12th round. And in the 12th round, number 320, they finally took Reggie by the Oakland Raiders. That very first year, he wound up having a starting job. And I said, what kind of a person was he? And, and Coach Switzer said he, he was a fine young man. He was always actually kind of quiet. Never gave you any problems. Had such a great attitude and worked so hard. Had such an incredible career with Oakland. Number 320, not just 255. He went on to do great things there in the NFL. And I, I said, Coach Switzer, do you, do, you, uh, do you know Tay Crowder? No. Why did you write him? And Coach was quiet for a moment, and then he said, Well, Bob, I think everybody needs encouragement. He said, I never tried to coach out of fear. I never felt the best way to get the most out of these young men was to holler and scream or to get in their face and cuss them out. And I always felt the best thing to do was give them a pat on the back and a word of encouragement. And I thought, you know, what I wanted to say today was it doesn't matter where you get picked or what other people think about you. You have talents and abilities, and this is your moment to develop them. But now I also thought about a fact. There is one talent and opportunity that everybody has, and that's to encourage those who are around you. Maybe you're a five-talent person. Maybe you're a phenomenal athlete, or maybe you're an incredible musician. Maybe you love medicine, or maybe you love art. You have talents and gifts. And now is your moment in time to develop the gifts that have been given to you. Whether you're on the front lines, or whether you're having to shelter in place, this is your moment to develop the gifts that have been given to you, regardless of what other people think. But never forget that 
every one of us has the opportunity and the ability to reach out and encourage somebody else. Isn't it interesting when you look at these men who received their talents, one five, one two, when they came back to the master, they were told, enter into the joy of your master. It didn't matter whether one now has 10 and one had four. They both received the same joy. The only one who missed out on the joy was the person who said, I was afraid. And I went and buried it in the ground. Now is not the time to be afraid. Now is the time to look at your life, to see the gifts that you have been given, and to know this is the opportunity to learn, to grow, to develop them, and to make sure you're going to encourage other people to do the same. Secondly, it's important to understand that what you do really does make a difference. It doesn't matter whether you have five talents or two or one. Everybody makes a difference. When we fought World War II, some would be pilots and some would be sailors. Some would be in the infantry. Some would be at home working to build those planes and ships. Everybody had a gift to give. And what they did mattered. What you do matters. We take this parable in the 25th chapter of Matthew, the middle parable on the talents. The first parable is all about watch. This is your moment. This is your time. You never know when this is going to be. Then you have the talents. The last parable, well, it's the very famous parable when Jesus said there was a master and he divided his people between the sheep and the goats and the sheep on the right hand and he said to the sheep, enter into the joy of your master, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and you visited me. I, I was in prison and you came to me. And they said, when did we ever see you, Lord? And he said, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Right now, you and I have the opportunity to make such a difference for the least of these. Not in value, but people who have found themselves hurting because of what's happened in the world. The COVID virus, an economy that fell off a cliff, people who find themselves out of work, people who find themselves hungry. Every single one of us can be doing something. A word of encouragement you know, I have to tell you, I'm incredibly proud of the St. Luke's family of faith. I've been in a number of Zoom meetings. I'm talking to different people all the time. And the stories that I keep hearing of how you have been reaching out to one another, sending emails, a text, writing a card, a phone call, taking somebody cookies, all the things you have been doing to encourage and to bless one another it has made me so proud to see the way that you are doing what you can with your gifts to try to bless this family of faith and take care of each other. But you know, I also look at this food ministry that we're involved in. 
this was a moment in history when you and I stepped forward in a phenomenal way. And when I look back and I see how God led us to this moment, you, you can't help but see in that hand of providence. You know, St. Luke's has had a commitment to food ministry for as many years as we probably existed. We've been running Meals on Wheels for more than 30 years. It was probably 10 years ago, I, I told you a story about a man named Bruno Serrato. I'd come across the story, and knowing our commitment, it resonated with me when I read the story about Bruno. It turned out that Bruno had actually been born in France in 1956. Though his whole family was Italian, the family had moved to France for work. They were farmers. And quite often, they were poor and they were hungry. He knew what it was to have so little growing up. When he was 11 years old, they moved back to Italy to be with family, his grandparents and others. He finished his schooling and there he began working in restaurants. He loved his mother. He worked in a restaurant with his mom. But finally, when he was about 24, he decided to come to the United States to go live with a sister and her husband in Southern California. And so he went to come live with them. He did not speak any English. It was his sister who, who helped to get him a job in a restaurant being a busboy, a dishwasher. He didn't have to speak English to do that. But he worked on his language, and as he got better, they soon made him a waiter, and then he was maitre d', and then he became general manager. Within five years, he had climbed in a very prestigious restaurant. He loved what he did. It was his talent. It was his gift. Finally, after seven years, he was still living with his sister and her husband, doing his job, saving his money, and he was able to go out and buy a 100-year-old building and open his own restaurant. He called it the White House. It was an upscale Italian um, steakhouse. It was very successful. And Bruno had turned a corner. He had had his dreams. And he was focused on his dreams and not limitations. He was developing his gifts and doing so well. His mama came to see him from Italy. And he knew his mama loved helping children. And so he had already gotten involved with helping to raise money for a boys and girls club. And he took his mama to the boys and girls club and said, See, here's where I'm helping but his mama saw a little boy sitting over in the corner eating a bag of potato chips. And she went over and talked to this little boy and found out that's all he was going to have for dinner. Then she came back to Bruno and said, you need to feed him. And he said, Mama, I don't know him. It doesn't matter. You feed him. Mama, how am I going to feed him? You have a restaurant, don't you? Okay. He got to know this young boy, found out that he was a motel kid. You see, in Orange County, what had happened was you had places like Disneyland, so many high-end entertainment areas, price of land had gone through the roof, to buy a house was expensive, to get an apartment first and last month's rent was out of all these people's reach. So what you could do was you could go and rent a motel room one night at a time. One night at a time, that was all between you and homelessness. And quite often the children had nothing to eat. You had nothing with which to cook. And so Bruno went back to his restaurant and began cooking pasta and sauce and fed 70 children at that motel that night. 
And he came back the next and the next, and soon he was feeding a hundred children there at that hotel. And then he found out there's another motel, and he began feeding them there as well, another hundred. And that became his calling. I thought that was such a, a great story, to see the need and understand, Mama, yes, it is my responsibility to feed these children out of my restaurant. That's what he was doing. I shared that story with you 10 years ago. Probably seven years had gone by, and I don't know why I thought about Bruno, and I went to check and see if that ministry was still going on or if it had lived its course. And when I found an update in 2018, what had happened? Well, 2008, it got really hard on him. He started in 05. 2008 got really hard because of the economic crash. But he had managed to sustain this ministry of feeding the children, and it had grown. And by 2017, it had grown from these 200. Now he was feeding 2,000 children a day in 2017. And it was February of that year that he got a phone call in the middle of the night that his restaurant was on fire. This 100-year-old building had faulty electrical wiring, and it burned to the ground. Everything he had worked for, it was gone. And he cried and he cried. And he talked about going to this restaurant and standing there in the ashes, still smoldering with the firefighters. And they said, is there anything you would like us to look for? And he explained that he had received a letter and a, a crucifix um, from the Pope, Pope Francis, a rosary. It had been given to him to honor the work he had been doing at feeding the children. But you looked at this place of rubbish and ashes when suddenly his niece looked down and reached down into the ashes and there was the rosary. A couple of beads were broken, but the crucifix was just fine. And Bruno remembered standing there in the ashes and thinking, Christ suffered so much for humanity. This is nothing. I must feed the children. He turned his focus from what he had lost to what he was called to do. It turned out that the Catholic Church of Orange County had bought Robert Schuller's Crystal Cathedral, and it was now called Christ Cathedral. And what they did was they said, you can come and use our catering, our professional kitchen. We'll give you exclusive rights to all the catering. That way you can be making money while the restaurant is rebuilt and you can continue to feed the children. And suddenly that's what he was doing and more people had come to join in and now he had gone from 2,000 to 4,000 children a day that he was now feeding. The restaurant was finally back open. You know, when I was reading that, I I found it so inspiring. And so it was in January of 19 that I, I got Phil Greenwald and Wendy Lambert and Josh Attaway and the four of us, we, we flew out to Orange County so we could go meet Bruno Serrato. We had dinner at the White House. We went over to go see Christ Church, the, the, new, the Christ Cathedral, the beautiful cathedral that was now owned by the Catholic Church to see the good work that they were doing. 
But meeting with Bruno was so inspiring. He told us about this ministry. He calls it Katarina's Club after his mother, Katarina. That was her name, Katarina. Well, this is Katarina's Club in order to feed these children because she had said that day, you feed this boy. And all these years later, he was still doing that. And those numbers had climbed so amazing. Well, we left there in January of 2019 and came back and we were inspired. And we said, you know, we have such a history here at this church of working in food ministry, but we need to make this more of a priority. What if we started working for children after school ministry? What if we tried to up what we could do for our Meals on Wheels routes? And as we came back and talked about all this, we got the opportunity it suddenly came our way, what if you wanted to take over Meals on Wheels for all of Oklahoma County? The area-wide aging agency asked us if we would consider doing that. We talked to our leadership, we prayed, we thought, and we decided to do it. We made application, we were chosen, we were given a grant, and we went out and hired three people to come on board and say, we are going to develop a food ministry here. We knew it was going to cost this church some real money to be able to do this. But we wanted to invest, believing in what we could mean to this city. And so we started in July of that year. We had no idea that seven months later, we would be confronted with the coronavirus and what would begin to happen. But because of where we had been led, we were ready to partner with OG&E, Bank of Oklahoma, Chad Richardson Family Foundation, with Rotary, Oklahoma City County Health Service, with so many. And yet, to also know that as a family of faith, you have given more than any of these in order to carry this ministry out. The fact that we could be doing everything from down south at Asbury to north in Edmond, that we are running routes all week long. Who could have ever dreamed we would be ready in such a moment as this? And what you do matters. More than 200 volunteers, practicing social distancing, coming at different times, everybody doing what they can do, everybody offering their gifts. And amazing things are happening. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You know, I got to wondering what was happening to Bruno now, 2020. He had already survived the economic crash of 2008 and then a fire in 2017. He had gotten back open and was going and now the coronavirus where all restaurants had to be shut down. And what I found out was Bruno was no longer cooking. That is, his restaurant was not open. Just like everybody else, it had to be shut down, bringing economic struggles to so many. But Bruno was still cooking. The kitchen was still open. 
They had hired drivers to help take out pasta now to all these different boys and girls clubs to continue to get food to all these children. And they set up a place with a circular drive that twice a week people knew they could come and all this pasta was prepared and people would come through and they were being handed all these specially prepared packages to receive food that they could take home. They came by the hundreds upon hundreds twice a week on top of what they were doing for the children. And this reporter was talking to Bruno Serrato. And he was saying, you're not making any money and yet you're giving all this food away. I mean, this could cause real economic problems. And Bruno simply looked at the camera and he said, I cannot stop. I cannot stop. This is my calling. But after all that you've been through, and he kind of laughed and he said, I know, enough already, enough. And he laughed. And then the reporter said, it's obvious, no matter how much is taken from him, he gives more away. Today, you and I honor those people who gave what they had 75 years ago so that we could live in this free country where you and I have the opportunity today to focus on our dreams rather than limitations, to work with the gift that God has given to us. It doesn't matter how many you have. You take the gifts you have to develop them today. Knowing that what you do, it matters. For truly when we seek to be a blessing in this world, God will use us and we are told, enter into the joy of your master. You and I can face an uncertain future. We face an uncertain future and we do it with hope. Because we have heard Jesus say, be not afraid. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.